Our gracious Heavenly Father, great is your name. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, creator, sustainer, giver of every good gift. And Lord, we praise you for your word this morning, the, the word of God that is here, preserved, inspired for us. What light we have as we study these Old Testament patriarchs and people. May we never forget that they had partial light. And as we look at their sins and their mistakes and their choices and the things of their life that often cause us to wonder and ponder, may we remember what privileged people that we are in this day of grace, the completed knowledge of your will. And then, Lord, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, even the glories of the Father, as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Teach us these things. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of thy law, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. At Padam Aram, Jacob met the Lord in saving faith. His conversion reminds us of Zacchaeus in the New Testament, for there we also read that Zacchaeus, so overwhelmed by God's grace, a publican, a tax collector who had made his living and not the the, the most upright of means by uh, getting money from people uh, unjustly. With his expressed joy and gratitude, he said, I will restore fourfold of all that I've taken unjustly. And our Lord said of that, that day in that house, this day is salvation come to this house. And of course, Zacchaeus was not saved by his restoring what he took fourfold. His restitution was not what saved him. That was only a gesture, but a, of a, in a proof of a drastic heart change and attitude in Zacchaeus' mind that only salvation could bring. When people start parting with their money, you know something has taken place. And for someone who so notoriously took the amount of money to pay back fourfold, surely a work of grace has been wrought. Jacob, likewise, in the latter verses of Genesis 28, the Bible says he vowed a vow and he promises two things. That as he raised these stones of remembrance, this altar, that he would not forget God's house. A sign of genuine conversion, a concern for the things of God, the people of God, the fellowship of God. He would not forget God's house and that he would give a tenth of all that the Lord gave to him back to the Lord. He had been dramatically and gloriously changed. It is one thing to be saved. It is another thing to be subdued. I wonder today if your heart has not only been changed with the, the, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in a miraculous way, but has your life and your heart been subdued and brought under his absolute control? This process would continue throughout the next 20 years of Jacob's life in Laban's household. But, of course, sanctification continues all the life of the believer. But Jacob is about to enter into a time of training unlike anything he's ever seen before. Do you want to know about it? you think it's something that would help us out today? Let's look at Jacob's life because these things were written for our learning and our admonition that we that the scriptures might have comfort and patience and hope. How slow of learning we are often at the basic truths of the life of faith. I lament, as we heard so beautifully sung to us today, 
every year at my birthday, I reflect upon the Lord's work in my life over the past year. And since my birthday comes at the end of a year, it just is a natural progression. There's a natural time to do that. And I, I must confess to you that as I look back over the last year, I've just wondered how, how far have I grown in grace? How, how much has the Holy Spirit subdued me and controls me? And uh, we ought to often think about that in this, this life of grace that we live in. He raises an altar and declares this place to be the house of God or Bethel. He wasn't saved because of his giving. Please don't get sidetracked into that. But his willingness to give shows a deep work of grace within. At Bethel, Jacob learns what God is like. At Haran, he's about to learn what man is like. There's quite a difference, isn't there? And while we're learning and growing in grace and learning what God is like, do you know what he uses to teach us that? People just like you and me. Oh, to dwell above with the saints we love, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. And yet God uses people just like you and me, that person that just can get on your last nerve by walking into the room or a thought of them comes across your mind. I hope there's no one like that in your life, but I'm not naive enough to think that there is not persons or people like that. Your point of greatest irritation with someone shows you how far in sanctification you're grown. So you can just take that home with you and think about that this afternoon, but I'll go a different direction for the message this morning. The next three chapters of Genesis record Jacob's 20 long years in the household of his father-in-law, Laban. Away from home, his mother thought he could be gone for just a little while until his brother's anger was subdued and they got things in order. Then he would come back and the family would be intact again, but sadly... uh, She was never to see that. Rebecca would never see that dream that she had. The establishing of his own marriages here. I want to point out that Jacob is about 75 years old when he leaves his home and goes to uh, his future father-in-laws. And in the days of the patriarch, when aging, the aging process was obviously much slower because they lived long, uh, many scholars think that if you divided that in half, He was the equivalent of a 35-year-old person. So that puts it in a little different light. Don't let that number 75, you think, he's just now getting married. Well, that ought to give hope to some of you. Uh, And yet you think, how, why, and how can he start all that at that great age? But really, he's the equivalent of around 35 years of age. He will be around 95 when he comes back home. 20 years. At any rate, he is not a man fresh out of his teens, is he? I mean, he's, he's not someone who doesn't know anything. He's been exposed, and he's learned some lessons already, but he has a lot more to learn. Do you know that you've learned some lessons in grace, and you've grown to this, where you are today? But may I suggest to you and to me, we have a lot more to learn, don't we? Because the, the Lord's goal is, the Holy Spirit's goal is to conform you and me to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you look down deep in there, there's a whole lot there that does not look like Jesus Christ. And so this is what he's doing. He's already learned many harsh lessons about life and human nature. 
And he has many, many more to learn. These are years of uh, mixed blessing. And, and some commentators uh, act as if he's serving a prison sentence, getting paid back for all that he's done. And I, I don't like to look at this experience that way because what the Lord does in and through us is never for our punishment uh, per se or to make us suffer. The sanctification is the, uh, the Father's way, and it may be painful at times, of, as we've said, conformance to the image of his son, but to equip us for the best blessings he has in store for us. I know the thoughts I think to you. He that has begun a good work in you wants to complete it. And as we've studied recently on Wednesday night in the psalm, that great psalm, Psalm 139, that the Lord formed us and, and planned us before he ever placed us in his mother's womb, I have to think that he has a, a goal for, G, for, for Chris Lamb. I have to think that my Heavenly Father has a picture of what He wants me to be in this life. He knows what I will be glorified in the life to come with no struggle over the old nature and and the sins of this flesh. He knows what I will be, but He wants to show off His glory in this life, whether by life or by death, but that I would bear the, the marks in this body, in this life, of a life transformed in radiating the glory of the gospel, the glory of the grace of Jesus Christ. And so he must do a work. Some see this as a time of punishment, but I disagree. It must be noted that in the providence of God, which God in his graciousness overrules and intervenes and straightens out situations that we have messed up and made that only he could do. I'm sure all of us have times of our lives and there's seasons of our life as we look back and it's a, it's a miracle that we're here today clothed in our right minds. And we have to say, oh, what great grace and how the Lord it divinely intervened to straighten me out and to keep me from going there and doing that. And even if I did go there and do that, he has brought me back to where I am today. Oh, what great grace, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I saw a t-shirt the other day, and it says, I'm the wretch the song is about. I thought that was a pretty good, I'm not one for slogans on t-shirts, but that, was, that said a lot, that it, I'm the wretch that the song is talking about. But it must be noted that in the providence of God, that there are relatively happy and prosperous years here in Laban's household. Laban does treat Jacob deceitfully, and we're going to look at that, but he, he does give him a job, doesn't he? And guess who needed a job? Jacob needed a job. So don't ever look down on the provision of God. It was an honest, good, hey, he will leave there a rich man. He came there, although heir to great wealth, he didn't have anything in his hands but just provision to get there. What's he going to do for 20 years if his father-in-law, as a schemer as he was, we may say, Jacob has met his match, hasn't he? And may I just tell you something? You will meet your match. Consider your ways. Consider your modus operandi, how you do things. You will meet your match. And Jacob needed to meet his match, didn't he? He needs... He needs a dose of Laban. I feel sorry for him here in some regards, but there's a part of me that says, all right, good enough for you, Jacob. And we'll see as the Lord intervenes. He leaves a wealthy man. He is given his daughters in marriage. And so uh, overall, if you look at the whole experience, Jacob comes out the better 
for having gone to Laban. God is guiding Jacob. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Man thinks he's choosing his way, but the Lord directs his steps, doesn't he? He straightens it out, puts us on the right road. You might not even determine to go down this road, but God has gotten you there by his ways and means. He's guiding Jacob. Don't you see him guiding him? Well, when you read the whole narrative, and for a time we could not read the entire chapter, he went to the exact well, figure that, that Rachel was going to come to. Is that a divine appointment or not? And, and while uh, we look at that and marvel at that, that is miraculous. And all of us can, can give testimony to the Lord leading in our lives. We, we say things, I just happen to be there. I just happen to be in this, this place and I happen to meet this person. The Bible says that the Lord directs our steps. He's guiding him. In fact, he leads him to the very well where they will be watering their sheep. And there's a whole interesting narrative there. Some believe that the, 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 um, the reason they couldn't move the, the stone off the well, it was more like a cistern. It, it was a, a water storage thing. It, when you read the narrative, it's kind of funny. They were there at noon already, and that seems kind of interesting because usually they would water the, the, the sheep, the cattle in the latter part. And again, cattle is a word meaning sheep and all kinds of herding animals. And so that's, that sounds strange. And then why aren't they, why are they just standing there? Why doesn't somebody roll the stone away and get on with it? Some think that they waited till all the, the, the people got there that was supposed to get there. So as they opened the, the place of water that would save the dust and all to, to enter into the, the purified water that they had saved, all kinds, some say it's, young men along with the women who've come and so they really didn't have the strength to roll the stone away but one thing we know Jacob steps up there and rolls the stone away oh what things love will do or what a guy will do when he's trying to show out in front of a girl you can see that he moves the stone away shows everybody what the man the new man on the block can do and they all are standing in awe now, it's interestingly that Rachel is a shepherdess, the scripture tells us, and it was unusual for a woman to do this kind of work. The Holy Spirit tells us that she is beautiful, and yet she's strong. Uh, these combined traits in this woman that the Lord is going to use to help to found the, the tribes of Israel. Laban did have sons as well as daughters, we know from the record in, in chapter 30 and verse 35. And so either uh, we don't know uh, why Rachel served in this capacity. Either the brothers were too young uh, to do it or he had so many flocks and herds, every one of his children had to be in charge of his business. This is a family business. And the children are over parts of it or departments of it. And so all the daughters and the sons were involved. At least Rachel was, and she had brothers. And so it says a lot about her and how vast her father's holdings were. She was a beautiful woman, verse 17 tells us, that she was beautiful and well-favored. Sometimes beautiful people aren't well-favored. But she had both, and that's, that's an interesting combination and so she must have had a personality that caused people to like her along with her beauty. And she was industrious, strong enough to care for sheep, which is not an easy job, I'm told. I've never done it, but I can only imagine in my perspective of shepherding the Lord's sheep, I can tell you it's not the easiest job on earth. And I'm sure uh, shepherding literal sheep would be quite a, a task as well. Jacob rushes, no doubt, to impress her by rolling the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered her sheep. 
this appears to be a case of love at first sight. I don't know what your thoughts about that is. I'm not going to to ask you if your relationship was love at first sight, but can I just give a testimony today? Mine was. Now, my wife says that's not the case, but I know what was in my heart and mind. And it, it might not have been in hers, and it obviously wasn't. I was telling somebody recently, we dated four long and tumultuous years before I finally got her to put her name on the dotted line there. And then I, I, she always gets mad when I say this. And you get, you know, I really, I'm on dangerous ground here. I've just gone ahead and got here. So I'll just, I always say I, she chased me till, I, what did I say? She chased me till she, I chased her till she caught me. That's what I say. And she didn't like that, that, that phrase. She said, I did nothing of the kind. We see a love story here. Don't we love to see a love story? And it was truly love at first sight on Jacob's part. Things move quickly. When you read verses 11 and 12, look there. Jacob kissed Rachel. Uh, that's unusual, isn't it? Even, uh, even today, in this day of openness and just anything goes, this is way back then. It was unheard of. He kissed, and some say that he embraced her, whatever it is. I've never just walked up to somebody and embraced them like that. Have you? And he, 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 Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's brother and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. That is significant information because do you know what that says? He might as well have said, I am an heir to a mighty fortune. The relatives here know about rich Uncle Abraham, the prophecies made to him. And so this is a good match from Laban's perspective. When, Rachel gets, when, when, when Jacob gets there and Laban is just accommodating and offering jobs, of course he is. Whatever he could offer him would be a drop in the bucket to what Jacob was going to bring to that marriage. He's wanting his daughter, excuse me, his daughters to marry this man. The story is very similar to his mother, Rebecca's, and his father, Isaac, and their love story. No doubt when Laban heard of his relatives coming from so far. He had visions of jewels and gold and gifts. Do you remember the last time this took place? There were camels loaded down with stuff. Earrings and necklaces and presents of like a, a trousseau you've never seen before. It was the shower before the wedding and the groom brought all the gifts. And he, he was thinking, this was from, from Bromberg's, not from, from Walmart, the gifts that, that were being brought. And he could see the glittering diamonds and jewels and he'd say, oh, what a good day this is in the household of Laban. He knew Jacob was from a very wealthy family, and so he gives him a royal welcome. Laban probably does not know Jacob's situation. I'm sure Jacob didn't announce that he just tricked his brother, that he was a fugitive, and could you please take me in before I die? But it wouldn't matter if Laban knew that or not. He knew that he was the heir to a fortune. And so he fusses over Jacob. Do you hear what he says? He says an amazing, unusual phrase that, that you hear said back at the first wedding. When Adam marries Eve, what does Adam say about Eve? Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Je- uh, Laban says this about Jacob. It's almost cheesy. I mean, he's not marrying him, and he's, he's trying to show how spiritual he is. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You're just family. Oh, we're so glad you're here. And he pours it on. And uh, it's, it's kind of, he, he's, he's doing a job here. 
And in Jacob, guess what? Of course, he loves the lavish treatment. Who wouldn't? You want to say, uh, Jacob, you better look at the fine print before you sign that contract. The two men, no doubt, are sizing each other up. And each had met his match. There is poetic justice here, isn't there? But this is more than just that. We see the providential hand of God involving and not interfering, but directing his children's lives. Jacob is industrious. He's a hard worker. Everything you see here defies the description that some give of Jacob as being his mama's boy baking pancakes or biscuits back home. That's not the type of man that Jacob was. He was a sturdy shepherd. You don't roll the stone off of a cistern if you, all you've done is made biscuits all your life. And he's a, he's a strong, stalwart man. He began working industriously in the family business. And Laban thought, well, whether he has an inheritance or not, this guy, he's productive. His love for Rachel grows by their, their daily interactions with each other and with the sheep. And he knows it is, that's the one he wants to marry. After a while, Laban, a month to be exact, Laban extends a, a formal offer of a job. And Jacob proposes that if, if Laban would give him his daughter to marry, he would serve him for seven years. Guys, can you think about that? Just think about that for a while. Seven years of work. Actually, what Jacob doesn't know is going to be 14, but seven in itself, that's, that's quite a period of time. But what does the scripture say? Oh, it seemed as nothing. He was so love-struck. Those seven years went fleeting by. Laban likes the way Jacob works, plus he knows that he's the heir of a large fortune. Laban was a man who lived by his own terms. Be careful of these kinds of people especially in matters of the Lord and in matters very dear to your heart. The Bible gives instructions about this, doesn't it? Uh, about entering into, into agreements in working relations. The Proverbs wisely says, make no friendship with an angry man, for example. And I'm not saying that Laban is an angry man. I'm just saying the scripture gives us all kinds of of personality traits and things we should avoid and we'd be very wise to do it. In fact, In the New Testament, the Bible tells us to to not enter into this kind of business relationship with an unsaved person. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. First and foremost, in marriage, the most important relationship, but but other relationships as well. And so this man, Laban has his own terms. And while he's saying one thing, he's meaning another. It's bad to do business with people like that, isn't it? You keep saying one thing, and they keep saying something else, back and forth, back and forth. I was selling a car one time, and I'm not very good about that. I'm not good about that process. The car had been in my yard for a while. I had no intention of of selling it. It was kind of like a pet. You know, we had named the car. When I see that... that, uh, that commercial with a girl has named her car Brad. <laughs> well, my car was named Betsy. And she wasn't the first Betsy. This was Betsy about number three. And uh, 
Betsy had been through a lot in, in the Lamb household and a lot of trips between here and, and, and Knoxville, Tennessee. And, and so the car was there, and I just uh, it had gotten really to the point I didn't know what to do with it, but I was just kind of wondering. I had even asked the Lord, what would you have me do with this? And so one day, and, and periodically, I, you don't have to put a sign up. If, if a car sits somewhere very long, people just stop and knock on the door and ask you about it. It was weird. They would just almost, you know, every other day somebody would say, you got, is that car for sale? And I'd always say, well, no, it's... It's not. Well, if you were going to sell it, what would you have to have? And I didn't even have a number in my mind. But finally, I consulted with some of you men in the church, and, and uh, you, you gave me a number. And so I decided that would be the number. And so I remember this one guy, he'd come, and I said, I want this amount. And he kept saying, so you want this amount? And I said, no, no. I, I said, I want this amount. And he said, well, I'll call you. I'll be here Monday with the money. You know how those things. And he went on. He came back Monday, and he said, now, you did say, and then he pulled out the, the, the $100 bills. You did say, and he counted out short of what I had said. And I said, no. And I, by this time, and this is not really like my personality, but I dug in my heels. You know, this guy is thinking that this, he can just flash that money in my face, and I'll just be fool enough to take it. And so I, I was reaching for it, and then I said, no, 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 I, that, this is the amount I want to, to take. And so you've, you've probably met people like that. They're saying one thing. They're trying to get you to, to do something that you don't feel comfortable with. What, what Jacob is hearing and what Laban is saying is entirely two different things. He realizes that Jacob's great love for Rachel would make those seven years of free labor uh, very productive for his business. He'd already proved himself. He was the kind of guy you wanted as a foreman on the ranch. And for one thing is for sure, Jacob truly, purely, and devotedly loves Rachel. But there the plot thickens because Laban has another daughter, an older daughter, Leah, who had not yet been married. And in that culture, in that time, in that day, it was unheard of, unthought of for the younger daughter to marry before the older sister. And that was the custom. And obviously, it wasn't so much a custom where Jacob was from, but it certainly was in Haran. Or at least it was in this family, we'll say that. But he says it's the custom of our people. Obviously, Jacob doesn't know this, and in fact, it seems as if Leah was practically unnoticed by him. I'm sure he must have met her, but you see nothing of her until the marriage, until he finds out the the, the trick that his father-in-law has played on him. Laban failed, of course, to explain this to Jacob before entering into a contract with him about Rachel. He should have explained this obviously strong custom to Jacob, but he conveniently doesn't he didn't want to lose his once in a lifetime opportunity with Jacob and so we see there in verse 21 and Jacob said unto Laban give me my wife after the end of seven years a deal's a deal I've done my part you're a better man for it for my days are fulfilled that I may go in into her and Laban gathered all together all the men of the place and made a feast these weddings took about a week can you imagine of feasting and revelry And the wedding is at night, and Jacob would not actually see his bride's face until after the proceedings and the feasting. And the Bible tells us in verse 17, I want to help try to clear up the the verse 17. Poor poor Leah's had some, over the years, I've heard all kinds of things said about her. The Bible says she was tender-eyed, but Rachel was beautiful and well-favored. And some had said that she had weak eyes, that she had an eye problem. 
but probably the, the best explanation of it was her eye color. Because in that culture, the darker the eyes, the darker the, the, the eyes of the, 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 the lady, she was thought to be more beautiful. And some uh, re, uh, commentators I've read said that she may have had light-colored eyes, blue eyes or whatever. And it was just in that culture, she was not considered to be beautiful. Whatever it was, she had not been married. And it might have been because of her father. Have you ever thought about that? The reason these girls had, had not yet been married. And we see that Laban puts on, I'm sure, wedding. Jacob agrees to the customs of the land, and one of which was not being able to see the bride. You see where some of these customs come from? On the day of the wedding until the wedding ceremony. Or in our culture here, and I don't like to use this word, but it's bad luck for the groom to see the bride ahead of time. I'm sure that's where this, this comes from. Jacob never questioned whether or not it was really Rachel. He had no reason to. He, he fully thought that he was marrying Rachel. So for Jacob's part, we do feel sorry for him, don't we? That he was tricked into marriage. He had fulfilled his part of the contract fully, and he expected Laban to do the same. But people don't always do what you expect, do they? He really doesn't know Laban's true character, but he's about to see himself in the dazzling light of truth. The truth is stubborn, isn't it? The truth is what it is, and God must show us the truth about ourselves. Or we will never, first of all, be saved, and we will never progress in sanctification without truth the truth hurts sometimes doesn't it as we look into the mirror of God's word and it shows us how we've not progressed or a sin that we've regarded or some area of life as we come before the Lord's table today this is always an examination time for God's people Lord search me O God and know my heart and my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me Whatsoever a man sows, the scripture declares, this unchanging spiritual law ordained by the triune Godhead in eternity past, before the foundations of the world, whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. In due season, the guarantee tells us, we shall reap. The question is, what are we going to reap? Well, the Bible tells us exactly what that will be. If we sow to the flesh, we will reap what the flesh produces, sin and death. If we sow to the Spirit, we shall reap all of those blessings and treasures that the Holy Spirit alone can bring. There's the difference. Matthew 7, verse 2, For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet. You met what measure you measure out. It shall be measured to you again. There's a lot not explained in these verses. For one thing, where was Rachel in all this? And... Had she been persuaded or threatened out of guilt or pity for her older sister or from her father, we wonder Rachel's place in this whole scheme. The Bible does not tell us, and so we can only wonder. 
And it, it could not have been easy for Leah either. Can you imagine what Leah had to go through? The pawn who was tricked into marrying Jacob, although I think by this time that, that Leah probably loved Jacob as well. You must remember the old saying that faith is living without scheming. And a scheme always has unsuspected results. She, I'm sure, wanted to be married. No woman would, wants to be unmarried, I'm sure, and it's just the Lord's will. But marriage is not a business proposal, is it? It is not to be entered to, as the old preacher's manuals say, lightly or unadvisedly. The Bible doesn't record for us the feelings between these sisters, but we know sisters and relatives, and we can only imagine. I think the girls were being obedient to their father, don't you? And that their father, ruthless as he is, but no doubt this thing was cruel and wrong. The, the Bible is not saying this was an okay deal. The Bible in this illustration is not telling us that polygamy is okay in, in, under certain circumstances. The Bible is recording to us the events that took place and the problems that will be a result of it. One thing is for sure. Jacob's heart was smitten with the realization that the law of God of sowing and reaping had come full sway. The boomerang had come back to his doorstep. So this is how it feels to have your tenderest heart and emotions stomped on. This is what it feels like to be on the receiving end of deception and a word of being broken or not being truthful to someone. As he had trampled on the tenderest and most sacred feelings of Isaac's heart, he had not thought of the unalterable laws of the spiritual universe, but may I call your attention to them today. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. Now he is reaping just what he is sowing. We don't have time to go into all the meticulous details and the parallels and the comparisons that the two situations have. Isaac had thought Jacob was Esau, and Jacob thought Leah was Rachel. He was married to Leah. In both cases, the deception had been commandeered by a parent, and in both cases, the purpose of deception was to get something they desperately wanted. There are lessons here for parents. There are lessons here for all of us. There is no record here of Jacob berating Leah, he confronts his father-in-law, and he demands an explanation, and Jacob unabashedly explains, and Cold or Laban explains unabashedly the, the terms and the traditions of their, their area. He proposes a second plan, always the man with the deal in his hand. I'll tell you what I'm going to do, since you've been so good and faithful and, and you've been such a good worker. I'll tell you what I'm going to let you do. I'm going to let you work for me seven more years for Rachel. Jacob has two wives. It is not a good thing. Nowhere in the scripture is polygamy uh, said to, to be okay. And it always shows us the problems and the, the heartache from this kind of arrangement. We must remember that polygamy was not at all uncommon in that day. It was not God's will. We see clearly God's will in marriage on the very first marriage ceremony that God himself performed. And the Bible tells us like this, and in the light of this day and all that's surrounding our, our, our nation, our state today, about what marriage is and who has the right to marriage, the Bible is, after all, the final authority in these areas. 
The Lord God said, the Bible tells us in Genesis 2.18. And this is the answer I think we should give to all people. What is marriage? It's not what Chris Lamb thinks it is. The Lord God said, it is not good that a man should be alone. And I will make him and help meet for him. And so he made a woman. He did not make another man to, for Adam. He made a woman and brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. And therefore, the principle was set in motion. It would go down to this very day until the Lord comes back. Therefore, shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That church is marriage. That is God's standard. Thus saith the Lord. All the laws of the Supreme Court and the decisions of judges who want to make a name for themselves and who may, in their hearts, think they're doing the right thing to correct injustices. All the customs of nations or feelings of people cannot change God's will about marriage. We must say that, that many problems will plague Jacob's household. There will be jealousy. There will be favoritism. There will be children down to Joseph's life. We don't, the, the story goes on and on because of all of this. But through it all, we see the grace of God, don't we? The grace of God to sinners. And no matter how messed up we can get our lives... There is a God in heaven who has the answers. And his answer is found in the person and work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Dr. Henry Morris says, Even today, although parallel polygamy is illegal in Western nations, a serial type of polygamy is commonly practiced as a result of frequent marriage and divorce and marriage and divorce and just one after another. Today, however, as well as in Jacob's time, such multiple marriages normally involve much heartache. And serious family problems. One thing is clear. God loves Leah, doesn't he? And he loves Rachel. And no matter what Jacob might feel, God, in his grace, in his sovereignty, he intervenes. Aren't you glad for the, the divine interventions of God? Oh, the depth of the riches of his riches, both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. May the Lord bless his word this day. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come after this solemn portion of Scripture to observe this picture, this ordinance of your table, the Lord's table, that is symbolic of your person and work on our behalf at Calvary. Lord, while we invite people to examine themselves before they take the Lord's table and we do not require membership here to partake of it, we, Lord, want everyone to know that you, this picture is those who've been saved by your grace and they are in that state of grace, that relationship of salvation with you and obedience to you by their open public profession of faith and baptism. Let no one take of this memorial meal thinking that that will commend them to you or gain them access or add grace to their sinful lives all that can save us is the work of our dear savior and we praise you for that amazing grace and that jesus 
did pay it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. We ask these things in Jesus' name.